Heavenly Father, we thank you for the marvellous opportunity we have today to gather around your word in freedom and in safety. We pray, Father, that as we have all sorts of different challenges and problems and things on our minds, that you would help us to put them aside for the moment and to concentrate on your word, to concentrate on what it has to teach us and how it can change our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Graham's been doing... Uh, well, firstly, thanks for letting me come. It's, it's lovely to be here. Um, I always enjoy coming, whether I'm preaching or whether I'm just here. This is, um, this is like a second home for, for the Brigden family. We really enjoy coming. Um, and I was just reflecting last night what a privilege it is that um, our kids can come, because they have to come, like, at least in my family, they, they have to come. Um, but they come in a context of wanting to come and enjoying coming, and you guys are a part of that, so... Thank you for the way in which you make us feel welcome um, and for um, making our kids feel welcome, especially when uh, my two can't hear me. I'll come. Is that better? And I'll sit closer. I, I'm sorry, I can speak louder. Um, I try not to put on my teacher voice um, with adults. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so it's, it's thank you for, for, for the way in which you welcome us. It's great to, to be here. This passage is a little bit different from the other passages that Graham picks because this is the last sermon about meals with Jesus and all the other meals uh, that Graham picked that Jesus had were of uh, situations where Jesus ate or interacted with someone who would generally be considered a scumbag. Um, whether it was a tax collector or whether it was a so-called sinful woman, um, Jesus would have a meal with them or would agree to interact with them, and all the other people are like, are you kidding me? You're, you're eating with them, that traitor, that rotten person, that sinner there? Um, and Jesus would say, yes, I'm here for them. This meal is different. This meal takes place straight after Jesus rises from the dead. It's only found in Luke, though there are some similarities with um, a, a meal that, that's in John chapter 20. And it's basically Jesus rises from the dead. He appears to those disciples walking to Emmaus. They don't recognise him at first uh, until he breaks bread. Then he disappears. They run back to Jerusalem and bam, here he is. He appears and the whole point of the meal is to show that Jesus really did rise from the dead and that the scripture that foretold or forecast that Jesus rose from the dead has been fulfilled. Um, really, when you think about it, of all the different claims that Christians make, the idea that Jesus has risen from the dead is, I think, the most incredulous. It's one that people, when they think about it, really have trouble with because, let's face it, everyone knows that people who are truly dead stay dead. And after three days being dead, he was, he was dead. Um, and every time I come across the resurrection in class, it might come up in a conversation, I might actually be teaching on it, uh, I always get the question, did this really happen? Or the better question is even, how did it happen? I've no idea. How it happens, I have no idea. The mechanics of it, I don't know. But I also don't know how the wind blows. Um, I don't know how to graft fruit trees, as, as Josh knows how to do. There's all sorts of things I don't know, so I'm comfortable with that. But did it happen? That's, 
that's important. And it, this story shows that that was a problem from the very beginning. Jesus appeared and they all thought they had seen a ghost. And how do you know if something is real? Well, I, I tell my boys there and they, they say, well, it helps if I can see it. It helps if I can touch it. I think that's a fair point. Jesus understood that. So he actually said in verses 38 and 39, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And then Jesus did the other thing that conclusively shows he's not a ghost. He asked for food and he ate it in front of them because everybody knows that ghosts can't eat. And even in today's society, no one actually says that a ghost can eat. So there you have it. That satisfied the disciples who were present. They finally realised it was him. But there's a problem. They were in the room. I wasn't in the room. Were any of you in the room? Um, and for, for my boys at school, that's a problem. They weren't in the room. And they're like, well, how do I know? Well, science tells me. <coughs> science is, of course, the study of the world that we can observe, the things that we can see and touch and smell and taste and hear. We might use instruments to augment those senses, but in the end, we rely on those senses. But I'm constantly amazed by the fact that science relies on history in order to work. Because if you only ever go off what you can see and you can touch and you can taste and hear and smell, then you've got to rediscover what's been discovered before all over again. You can't rely on Einstein's theory of relativity because for us, that's an historical event that Einstein discovered it. We've got to discover it again for ourselves. We can't rely on Newton's laws of physics because the fact that they're there is an historical record. Newton discovered it, he recorded it for us, and we rely on his findings to apply them to other parts of life. Uh, Vicky and I had a date the other day, it was really exciting. The kids were in daycare, so we went to Wet n Wild. So much fun. <laughs> so good. Big photo, Vicky puts it on Facebook. Date day, look at us, and it's like, yeah, this, this was fantastic. But I was going up one of these slides and I thought, this whole place is a monument to science. Because in order for the place to work, the people who run the slides have got to work out how fast you'll go down, how how much water you'll need. If you're going to go too fast, they've got to work out where they've got to put the water in to slow you down or how else they'll slow you down. And they've got to work out your behaviour on the slide and they've got to make sure that it's the same behaviour each and every time. Otherwise, there'll be an accident. The whole place is a monument to science working. Um, but in order for science to work, They've got to go back to the laws and the theories and the findings that have been found in the past. That is an historical record. What we have in front of us here with this account is an historical record. We weren't there. We didn't see Jesus. We couldn't touch him. We didn't see him eat the fish. And look, I don't know about you, I really would have liked to be there. Even as a fly on the wall, that would have been fantastic because then I could say for myself, I saw him. 
but 2,000 years have passed, I wasn't there. I am relying on an historical record. Can I trust that historical record? Well, it's one of several historical accounts of Jesus appearing after he rose from the dead. Uh, there are also some in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23, a similar kind of meal. Uh, you've got the walk to Emmaus. You've got Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 10, which says Jesus appeared over a period of 40 days. You've got 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 to 8, which tells you that Jesus appeared to Peter, then to the other disciples, then to 500 other people. And Paul says, and last of all to me, as one abnormally born, uh, which was a reference to his sin, I think. Um, there's, there's a number of historical accounts that Jesus rose from the dead. And I think it's worth noting, if you want to work out whether you can trust them or not, the people in the room, quite a few of them died simply because they wouldn't back down from their belief that Jesus had risen from the dead and they wouldn't stop telling everyone else about it. I think you're prepared to die for all sorts of things, but I don't think you're prepared to die a painful death for a lie. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, you can admit it's a lie and live with shame, or you can die horribly and painfully, as at least 11 of the 12 apostles did. Um, I think that's one thing that's worth, worth considering. In the end, I find as I talk to people that the resurrection has one big fat problem that can't be resolved by history, can't be resolved by science, and it comes down to this. It's just too fantastic to be true. It is literally unbelievable. And so lots of people will not accept it because it is unbelievable. It is a miracle. By definition, it goes against the laws of nature. And I can't say conclusively, well, this history's here because the history's there. You look at it for yourself. But if, you are, if this is you, if you are the person that says, I just don't believe this stuff, it's too fantastic to be true, then can I just make this point? The biggest Royal Commission in Australian history handed down its final report last month. It details thousands of unbelievable stories, stories of how priests and ministers and teachers mistreated thousands of children repeatedly in horrific ways. From what I can gather, every story has one thing in common. The victim was not believed. The idea that people in such positions of trust could commit such acts is unbelievable. And that was the problem for far too long. And I think it's only the volume of stories coming through over the past six years that has ultimately shifted the general belief that this stuff did actually happen. Let's not make the mistake of dismissing the resurrection because it is unbelievable. There is that old saying, truth is stranger than fiction. And I think that's very true. Many of the people, as I said before, who were in the room with Jesus died because they would not stop telling people what they saw and explaining what it means. Rather than dismissing it as unbelievable, 
My strong suggestion is, why don't you investigate it further? Why don't you look at the accounts that are in the Bible? Why don't you look at other, other historical evidence about the events and see what people actually say? It's worth investigating. It's also worth noting that Jesus' resurrection was not just exciting for its own sake, though pretty exciting. It was the fulfilment of Scripture. As Jesus himself said, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. According to Jesus, three things were forecast in Scripture. That he will suffer, that he will die, sorry, that he will rise, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. Now, he didn't tell us which, which passages he was referring to, but a search through the Old Testament backs him up. Psalms 22 and 69 and Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, verse 12 are just some of the passages that forecast that the Christ will suffer and these predictions were made at least 800 years before christ came psalm 16 verses 8 to 11 and psalm 110 verse 1 tell us that the christ was to rise from the dead and the apostle peter relied on both of these passages to explain that jesus had risen from the dead when the holy spirit came and everyone started talking in tongues and uh, the the disciples were accused of being drunk and Peter stood up and said, we're not drunk, it's only nine o'clock in the morning, let me tell you what happened. And in verse 36, he went on to say, after quoting those two passages, he would go on to say, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection means that those passages have now come true. It's a little bit harder to work out what he might be referring to when he said that scripture uh, said that forgiveness of, that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations. But I think Isaiah 55 verses 6 and 7 uh, is a good match. You might remember Isaiah 53 tells us the suffering of Christ. Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 55 tell us What's the consequence of all of those sufferings? And there will be a, a new agreement with the people. Uh, Jerusalem will be restored. And one of the other things was that there is a plea. In the middle of Isaiah 55, it's verses 6 to 7. I'm going to read it out to you. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God and he will freely pardon. One of the consequences of the suffering of the Messiah in the Old Testament was that this plea would go out that you should seek the Lord and you should turn from your wicked ways. That's repentance, turning away from what is wrong, turning towards what is right. So he then goes on to say, let them turn to the Lord and they will he will have mercy on them. To our God... He will freely pardon. The two sentences, uh, they mean the same thing. 
So you have repentance, turning away from wickedness and turning towards God, and you have forgiveness that flows on from that. Because you've turned to God, everything is wiped away. That's the consequence, according to Isaiah, of what um, the Messiah's suffering would bring. Now, if we look at those three things, we can say, yes, two of them clearly fulfilled right here and not right now. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And for the last 2,000 years, Christians have been fulfilling the third of those uh, things that had to occur in Scripture. That is, people have been urging people for 2,000 years, turn to Christ, repent of your sin, and you will be forgiven for your sin. And so Jesus' resurrection, according to the Luke passages, his message must be preached. We must repent so that we can be forgiven. The need for repentance and for forgiveness of sins is, in my view, probably the greatest need we have. I can think of plenty of people who would probably disagree with me. I mean, even in the town over the last six months, there's been some, some fairly significant needs. I know visiting here a few months ago, I was, I was visiting the service station and I was being told, oh, look, some people are carting in water because there just isn't enough rain and they're not on, on, the, on the town water. So they're carting it in at $1,200 a tank. That's a problem. That's a huge need. The farmers were crying out for rain because in this area, three months without rain is like three years in other areas. That's a significant need. I was talking to someone else who was telling me how his business was really struggling. That's a significant need. There were other things going on as well. I look, I go up along Carlong Street and I go out towards Kangaloon and I notice that some of the potato crops have their leaves burnt. I don't know what that does to the crops, but I gather that's not the standard way to grow potatoes. Um, I imagine the need for water and, uh, is a need out there. We have needs, we have worries, we have concerns and they're real. And they hit us day by day and in some cases they're urgent. But one of our challenges in life is to not allow the urgent to crowd out the important. And I think the need for repentance and forgiveness of sins for all of us trumps all of those. For me, the rubber hit the road on this point when my mother died. She died 17 and a half years ago. She was 48. I was 23. And it was sudden. But for the three previous six months, um, my mother had been mostly in hospital uh, with depression. If you had ever known my mother, you would think this is the last woman to get, or the last person to have depression. Because you need to think vibrant, bubbly, outgoing, loud freight train loud kind of, kind of person. Um, think of the, the bubbliest person you know, triplet. That's my mother. Last person you would ever expect to get depression. But she did. She slept lots. She was pretty mopey at the time. She went into hospital. Um, initially for two weeks, but two weeks turned into 12. And when she left, the hospital knew she'd be back. She wasn't really ready to leave, but she needed a break. And then she went back in four weeks later and this time determined to get better and so we knew it would be longer and this time it was ten weeks. But for her faith, depression was probably the best thing that ever happened to her. Because, as I said before, she grew up Catholic so she knew stuff about Jesus. 
She became a Christian when I was 15 and was rebaptized in our backyard pool, but she wasn't academically confident. Our minister at the time was academically confident, and so it was a bit of a mismatch. Um, she didn't didn't grow the way she might have otherwise. She knew she needed teaching, so she actually asked to join the Sunday school so that she could relearn the basics. Uh, funnily enough, um, my minister said no, um, so she continued to struggle. But in hospital, she had a Christian psychiatrist. And every morning he would come in in the first five to ten minutes, they would open the Bible, and he would simply, at her level, explain the gospel again and explain the truths in the Bible again and how they applied to her life. Best ten minutes of a day. She grew more in six months than in the rest of her life put together. And four weeks after she left, she had an accident. She, um, my, my father, my mother and father had been working out near the pool. Uh, my father was working in the garden. My mother was spray painting some craft kind of stuff that she'd really got into. Dad was pretty hot. Um, it's the June long weekend and she, he went in for a shower and half an hour later came out and found her face down in the pool. And everyone was shocked. No warning, no idea that it was going to happen. Not related to a depression. But the thing is, she died young, but she's safe in the arms of Jesus. She understood the gospel. She had accepted it years ago. She had had her assurance in Jesus strengthened nearly every day for six months. And when she died, she could not have been in a better position to go and meet Jesus because she had true assurance of faith. She understood that it was purely Jesus who had saved her. We might run the most effective business in town. We might have a really influential position with an organisation. We might be the best parents around that actually everyone wishes that their parents were you. But if we don't know Jesus, then we're going to die in the greatest need the need for forgiveness of sins won't have been met. And when we die, we won't be safe in the arms of Jesus. And so I can't emphasise enough this need for Jesus. So how are we going here? I love being here. I love the people here. I come here by choice. I'm not just here because I have to be. How are we going here? There's lots of things that encourage me. If you're a kids leader and you're on a break at the moment, can you just put your hand up? Love your work. Thank you. Because you guys and what you do means that we can sit and we can continue to be fed in Jesus. And our kids can be fed. Um, every time Dennis gets up, he tells us the morning teas are awesome. I agree with you, Dennis. The morning teas are awesome. If you've ever done a morning tea, can you put your hand up? Yeah. Thank you. Love it. My kids love it. If you see them with two full hands of stuff, can you feel free to send them back and give them to somebody else because they're guts, the both of them. Don't know where they get that from. Um, yeah, love your work. If you have someone who is on your heart, I won't embarrass you by making you put your hand up, but thank you for your work. 
because I know that there's lots of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that might not make it to an interview that is genuine, loving ministry. But can I also just outline a couple of other figures that I looked up? Population in Robertson, according to the last census, is 1,857 people. We have about 100 of them in church, um, so I guess we're reaching about 1% of the, the town at the moment. Um, the numbers get a little more sobering if we include the wider district, which is part of our parish area. So if we expand out to Kangaloon and we expand out to Avoca and we go to Wilds Meadow and Burrowang and, and so forth, then according to the, the census district of Robertson, we've got 3,457 people here. And because we're an Anglican church, we're a parish church. So we're responsible for doing our best to reach out for the gospel to all of them, not just to the people who come. 28.9% of the districts say they don't have a religion. Another 11.4% decline to say what religion they do have. So two people out of every five basically either say they have no religion or decline to say what religion they have. There's a big fat need right there. The other thing that I might just get you to look at is just take a look around in the room and don't point, but just mentally note in your head everyone over 55. And then add 15 years. Because the people who are 55 now in 15 years' time will be 70. And at that point, I hope they're still in ministry. I hope they're still doing their things around town for the sake of Jesus. But that's the proportion that are reaching the, dare I say, towards the closer to the end point, without wishing to be rude about it. Then have a look at those people and see how many of them are 45. They're the people who are active now and vibrant now, but who in 15 years' time are 60. Some of them will have no problem continuing on the way it is. But the reality is, others of them will. Because for some reason, things start occasionally going wrong past the age of 60. If we do nothing, that's the proportion of church that are helping out now that may not be able to help out in 15 years. We keep on doing what we're doing to reach people for the gospel, to keep gospel work going. If we do nothing, then in 15 years' time, I don't like the look of where we'll be. How can we share the gospel to a wider section of the community? Can I make two quick suggestions and just finish it there? One, just find three people to be patient with. Three people who are close to you, that you pray for, that you are prepared to share the gospel with. Perhaps they're friends, perhaps they're family, perhaps they're just someone that you are genuinely concerned about. And be patient with them and persistent. Um, in my last church, there was a wonderful fellow who became a Christian at the age of 67. He had been a, a, definitely been a ratbag, um, but he had a friend who pursued him for 35 years. They knew each other as young men. Um, the man who became a Christian later in life had gone overseas, worked there, they kept in touch. Uh, went to Russia, they kept in touch. Came back here, they kept in touch. And he kept just presenting Jesus. 
35 years later, he became a Christian. And I bring that up to say, don't give up. Keep being patient because that's one more person in the kingdom. That's one more person whose need for forgiveness of sins has been met. I guess the other thing I just encourage is uh, we have a minister who, as far as I can work out, can think smart about ministry. I like it. Um, he's been banging on, at least when I've been here, about the need for a kids worker, kids and families worker. He's been asking us to support that. Um, I reckon that makes a lot of sense. First of all, supporting that means they can reach out to the 15% of the town that is aged between 5 and 17. Um, there's, not too many, there's not too many ways of easily picking up 15% of the population uh, within one easy ministry. But the other thing is you, you, you go and you, if, if you can get someone who can concentrate on them, there's access to their parents. And make no mistake, parents are to an extent bound up by the kids. I've been coming here on and off for six years, but at one stage I was going to another church nearby and loved it, very friendly minister. But we reached a point, Vicky and I reached a point where we just couldn't keep on going because Natasha was 10 days old and Hugh came and they didn't have anything for anyone under the age of four. So Hugh started off the service and everyone loved him. He's saying, I am the way, the truth and the life louder than anybody else. It was amazing. And so everyone's smiling, politely, lovingly. And then we've got to keep him right here and... um, We're doing our best. We take him outside. He might have a run around. We take him back in. We sit down. And eventually, two minutes before the end of the sermon, he says, Okay, you can stop talking now. Everybody heard. I kid you not. This minister, by the way, doing a lovely job in the sermon. Perfectly fine. He wasn't boring. Lovely man. Godly man. Please don't think I'm picking on him. I'm not. Um, And... When Vicky and I apologised afterwards, oh, he was so very gracious about it. But as I said before, you want your kids to come to church in a context where they want to be there. Um, And the church so far here has set up that environment. Finding someone who can concentrate and keep those programs running and expanding them makes sense. Because according to the same census data, you've got 40% of the town aged over 50 In fact, it's more like 46%. Um, It could be my ignorance. We're not not doing as much in that space as far as I'm aware. But when you've got just the one minister, he's got so much time, and the really silly thing we can do with a minister like that is that we say, you're doing everything. I worked in a church like that once. The minister did the lawns, did the church maintenance, um, did the scripture. He did everything. Uh, And he got very little support. Funnily enough, the church didn't grow because he didn't have time to walk up the street and go, Hi, my name is David. I'm the local minister. I live just down the street. Can we talk about Jesus? He did not have the time. If we are able to support that kids worker, from my point of view, as someone in kids ministry, that makes sense. We can talk to parents and we free up Graham to do the things that we... Um, haven't thought of doing yet and start up something new because you've got a great opportunity here and I just want to encourage us to keep going with that. On that note, let me stop and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for those people who preached repentance and forgiveness of sins to us. 
whether they did it over a period of years or just once. Thank you for the Holy Spirit in making that teaching true in our hearts so that we would accept it and turn to you and be saved. Lord, please have the same mercy on the other people in this town that you have had on us and the same in the wider area. Amen.